Number seven of the uh, most stupendous sermon series of the year so far. Uh, you know, I hope they get, keep, you know, keep getting better and better. So this is just so far. And today we're going to talk about the most wonderful marriage in history. The most wonderful marriage in history. And um, this is not one where I'm going I'm to be able to tell you who had the most wonderful marriage in history. For perhaps it hasn't even happened yet. Perhaps yours can be the most wonderful marriage in history. Those who are already married, and even those, those of you who are married and, and your marriage is a mess, or for those of you who have been married and that one ended tragically, horribly in some way, and there's one in the future, or for those of you that have never been married, yours could be. I mean, have that dream, right? Have that dream that mine could be the most wonderful marriage in history. You know, only, only when you start dreaming that way, only when you start believing for things like that can things really happen. So start believing. Start trusting God for that. Now, I want to go back. You know, a, a few weeks ago, we went to some, um, went some experts on love. And today, I want to go back to our experts on love for just a little bit, if we can. Um, and these are four to eight-year-olds. And they're going to help us. This is Carl, age five. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne, and they go out and smell each other. You know what? I, I've, I've had some dates back when I was a teenager that this would have been a step up on. You know, let's go on to the next one uh, if we can. This is uh, John, age nine. Love is like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. <laughs> let's uh, go on. And uh, we got a bunch of these today. Manuel, age eight. I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something, but the rest of it isn't supposed to be so painful. <laughs> but it is, isn't it? Let's go on. Uh, Mike. Uh, age 10. On the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. <laughs> Sounds like he's been reading somebody's Twitter. Once I'm done with kindergarten, I'm going to find me a wife. That's Tom. He's age five, and he, he's got some plans when he gets out of kindergarten, gets that uh, diploma. Ava, age eight, one of you should know how to write a check because even if you have tons of love, there is still going to be a lot of bills. I wonder what the conversations revolve around in her house. Regina, age 10, I'm not rushing into being in love. I'm finding fourth grade hard enough. Amen, amen. Uh, Angie, age 10, most men are brainless, so you might have to try more than once to find a live one. <laughs> Marlon, age 10, a man and a woman promise to go through sickness and illness and diseases together. <laughs> And this is Kristen, age 10. Single is better for the simple reason that I wouldn't want to change no diapers. Of course, if I did get married, I'd figure something out. I'd just phone my mother and have her come over for some coffee and diaper changing. That sounds like a plan. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and Floyd, age 8. Love is foolish, but I still might try it sometime. Most of us that try it know it's foolish. Dave, age 8. Love will find you. Even if you're trying to hide from it, I've been trying to hide from it since I was 5, but the girls keep finding me. Claire, age six, my mom loves me more than anybody. You don't see anyone else kissing me to sleep at night. <laughs> and uh, Noel, age seven, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, then he wears it every day. Oh, getting a little awes here. <laughs> Bobby, age seven, love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Oh, that's good, isn't it? That's a good one, yeah. Uh, and Nika, age six, if you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend you hate. Very good. And this is Rebecca, age eight. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. 
So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. And this is the one that, uh, this is a big long survey. This is the one that they said, uh, that they said one, and it was a four-year-old whose elderly neighbor had just lost his wife. And one day he happened to see his neighbor over in, in the other, in, in his yard, and he was crying. And so he walked over, four years old now, crawls up in the lap of this man and uh, sits there for a while. And after a little while, comes back over to his yard, and the mom, you know, she's wondering. She, she, she says, so what did you say to him? And he said, nothing. I just helped him cry. I just helped him cry. That's love. You know, so uh, sometimes you look at kids and say, they ain't got it figured out. And sometimes you think, well, maybe they do. They just seem a little confused, right? Sometimes about some of it, but they get some of it. Uh, it's no surprise to me because uh, they get all their ideas from us, right? Shouldn't surprise us when the kids get a little confused about what love is because we're confused too, aren't we? Let's talk about what, uh, for just a minute, let's talk about what we, what we mean when we talk about love. What do we mean? Like McDonald's, you know, I'm loving it. You remember that? You know? what, do they, what do they mean when they're, they're talking about hunger because they're talking about a hamburger, so when they say, I'm loving it, they're talking about hunger because they're talking about hamburger. Fans, when they talk about love, they're ta they mean allegiance because they're talking about their fa favorite sports team. We use the term, don't we? I love the, you fill in the blank. You know, I love my team. Followers mean devotion because they're talking about the hero, you know, the one, the one they want to be like, the one that they, that they follow their, their posts, they follow, the, you know, everything about them. They read everything they write or, or, or they go to every concert or whatever, the followers, that, that's what they mean is they mean devotion. And enthusiast means passion because they're talking about the things that they enjoy more than anything else in the world. I'm an enthusiast, you know, whatever your hobby is. You say, I just love to, and it, so we use that term there. And you know, no, no wonder we've got them confused a little bit. Fanatics, they, they mean obsession. I mean, they, they mean to be obsessed with something. It's like a fanatic has an idol. It's like they worship. So when they say, I love, they literally mean love in, in, in a worshipful idol kind of a way. An addict means hooked. When they say, I, I, I love a fill in the blank. I love getting high. I love getting a big buzz and a little bit farther and everything else. And, and when they're addicted, they mean they're hooked. And they got to have it. Uh, Madison Avenue means want. Now, that's kind of a code for, you know, the advertising uh, people. It means want because they tell us constantly and constantly and constantly what you have to have, what you have to be wearing, what you have to own, what you have to look like in order to fit in, in order to be cool. And so when they're talking about, you know, you, oh, you'll just absolutely love this or you'll love the way you look in it, they're talking about want. And Hollywood means sex. When they talk about love, they mean sex. They don't want to talk about love. You know, I mean, they can build a whole movie out of sex. You know, they, can, they have a hard time building a movie out of a four-year-old who crawls up in an elderly man's lap and just cries with him because sex sells, sells movie tickets. And then uh, romance novels mean lurid lust and self-gratification because in the same way, that's what sells books. So it's no wonder that kids are a little confused about love because, let's face it, so are we. As a people, as, as a nation, as a culture, we're confused about what love is. And, and when we don't take the stand, when we don't uh, really take the stand of, of what we believe and say what, what things are and what things aren't, say what's right, what's wrong, say what love is, say what love isn't, and challenge those things, 
They just continue to grow rampant and more and more and more. Left to our own devices, we don't get better, we get worse. We don't get more in line, we get farther out of line. And so today our kids are growing up in a culture that has more misunderstanding about what love truly is than any culture before it. Couple, uh, just a, a week ago, we had our date night and we watched some clips from a, a Jimmy Evans, just something to challenge us. And, and Jimmy Evans was talking about how we get married for all the selfish reasons, right? You get married because, oh, I, I just got I just to be with her all the time. You know, I got to wake up every morning and see her face or see his face. I, gotta, I, gotta, I just got to. You know, or it's just going to be wonderful. We're going we're to have a house together. We're going to have kids together. We're gonna... And he said, is it, and he asked this question, is it any wonder why so many marriages fail when the reason that we get married it's so selfish. Is it any wonder? Because, it's, uh, because that's not what marriage is supposed to be. Then where, what, what is then the recipe? What's the secret sauce? What's the, you know, the end all to end all? What, what is the, the magic potion then that makes some marriages wonderful and makes some marriages, eh, you know, we're getting through it. We're hanging in there. We can make it. What, what is the thing? I want to take you. I want to sh show you what it is. And, and you know, this morning, I, I'm, I'm really, really torn a lot of times of preaching, preaching messages about marriage and things because it's like, I really want to fix the broken ones, you know? I want to fix the ones that are just a mess. I want to, you know, I, I want to help you guys that are beating each other up on Saturday night and then trying to cover up the bruises on Sunday so you can come to church. I don't think we got a lot of people like that, okay? I, I'm just joking, but I, that's what I, I want to fix those that are really struggling. You had a lot of those, you know, and it's like, like I said last week, I said last year, we talked about this, is how it seems to be that, you know, the marriages that, that need the most help are the ones that refuse to even ask for it. It's, it's the people whose lives are such a mess, they seem to be the, 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 the last ones to ask. And, you know, you know what, what do they tell us about that? I mean, the very first thing you've got to do to get help is to admit you need help. And so it's those of us who are kind of in the so-so marriages or maybe an okay marriage or a pretty good marriage that really want an amazing marriage that say, hey, yeah, I want the extra help. Now I'm saying that for one reason because one of the things is I'm really hoping you're gonna let me pray with you at the end of this service over your marriage or your future marriage if you're not married yet. And what I'm saying is don't, don't you know, we should not feel embarrassed to say, I want, I want the very best marriage I can possibly have. Pastor, please agree with me. Or prayer team member, please pray with me. Pray over me that, you know, that all these things pastor showed us today in the scriptures, that all these things will happen in our lives so that we can have the most amazing marriage. You shouldn't be embarrassed about that, because, but a lot of people are like, oh, if I, if I pray, then everybody's going to think I'm one of those people that pastor talked about, you know, beating each other up on Saturday night and covered up with makeup on the next morning. But that's not the truth. Actually, this message is for those who have good marriages, but they want to have awesome marriages. Because if you've, got a, if you've got a terrible marriage, I can't fix it in 20 or 30 minutes. Now, God can in a moment, but my message can't fix it in 20 or 30 minutes if it's a horrible marriage. But I've got some truths for you. If, you're a if you've got a pretty good marriage, but you want it to be amazing, you want it to be awesome, you want it to be wonderful, I've got some truths for you. Here's the recipe. And that's one of the reasons I wanted us to use that video a few moments ago because I can't give you all the rest of it. There's so much to, to teach you in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 right there. But here in Ephesians chapter 5, here's the beginning of the recipe. And we're going to begin verse 22. And Paul writes, okay, ladies, don't check out on me right here, okay? Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. 
Now as the church, in verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. You know, so some people said I was really hard on the guys last week, you know, Boazes and Bozos. And, but you didn't hear me, if you thought that, you didn't hear me say what I was saying is it's not just about a male-female. It could be the other way around, the female to the male, okay? So it, it, it's, it's, it all fits here. And here we see it as well. You know, here's the big direction in these next few verses. If we're going to make this a, a gender-specific thing, here's the things you're going to see. Is you're going to see that, that God speaks through Paul and says, wives, submit yourselves to your husband. That's about all he says to the wives. The rest of it's to us husbands. He said, why is God so hard on us? He's not hard on us. But he calls us the head. And there's a reason that, you know, and, and if he, he gives us, it's, it's, not, it's, not the, uh, it's, it's not that we get the privilege of being the head. We have the responsibility of being the head. We're, we're the ones that are supposed to wake up in the middle of the night and go check the bump and the, the boom and the crash that happened in the kitchen. We're the ones that are supposed to turn on the lights. We're the ones that are supposed to, you know, go, go find out what just got in the garbage outside, you know, and, and when everybody else is asleep, we're the ones that are supposed to. That's what it means. We're, we're the ones that are supposed to be that way because actually we don't, as, as men, we don't even get let out of this one because let's back up one verse. Verse 21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the, right before this, he says, okay, both of you submit to one another. Husbands, wives, submit to one another. Okay, so here's the first, the first uh, ingredient in the recipe for a wonderful marriage. It is, it is mutual submission that we submit to one another. Now, that's really hard for us to understand because when we think of submit, we think of cow down and let them have their way in every single thing that goes on. That's not what it means. That's not what submit means. And so, I mean, if, you, if that's what you think submit means, then I understand why, why you, you're kind of looking at me glassy-eyed like, I don't see how you can both submit to one another. Yeah, okay, uh, college football fan, right? So, I meant, you know, got to give you, here's an illustration to help you understand, all right? Just a little bit more. Kind of like a, uh, it's kind of like, you know, a head coach and a quarterback, you know, say so they call a timeout to call a play. And so maybe the whole team comes over or maybe just the quarterback comes over and he talks to the coach and, you know, especially something like fourth and one, you know, and the game's on the line, you know, just a few seconds to go, whatever. And the quarterback, I guarantee you, he either wants to run the ball or throw the ball. He definitely wants to be in there doing his thing or whatever. And, and, and you know, he's got his ideas of the, of the perfect play, but the head coach has to make the call. And so the head coach says, no, 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 no. This is what we got to do. And the quarterback has to submit to the head coach. Why? Because the head coach, he's the head coach. And he's the one that's been thinking about all of this, and he's not caught up in the, in the emotion and the passion as much as the guy that's on the field right then. They say, I want to run it. I want to do it. You know, and he got all of the adrenaline pumping, and so he, he, he makes probably a better decision in that moment. So that's why the, the quarterback has to submit to the head coach. And so then what happens? The quarterback goes out, and he makes the, he makes the call. They snap the ball, and, and they snap the ball, and all of a sudden the, defen the defense, he realizes, is lined up in, in a way that will not allow them to run that play, even if he tried it. And he, maybe they do try it. The play is busted. And as soon as the play is busted, guess what? The head coach doesn't yell, no, 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 you keep on running the play I told you. No, the head coach doesn't do that. He expects the quarterback then to whether he calls an audible or if he just audibles and he just, he just does what he thinks is he takes off in a different direction or does something. And the head coach then has to submit 
to the quarterback saying, this is what is best for this moment. It's, it, it's kind of like this. It's like sometimes people come to me for advice. Now, I'm not a counselor, okay? If you, want, if you want 10 sessions, I'll help you find somebody. If you want one, I'm good, okay? Uh, I, I'm good for one good session, give you, a, give you a lot of good advice and those kinds of things. But here's something I know also, is I know when I tell you and I give you my advice, I'm not going to walk in. You know, you, you've got a problem at work. I'm not the one who's going to have to walk in and deal with that boss or that or that. Uh, troublemaker of, an, uh, of a co-worker. I'm not the one that's going to be there, so I will give you advice, but I understand I'm not expecting you to submit. I'm giving you advice. I'm expecting, you know, I'm submitting to you as a, hey, you go do it because you've got to live in that. Just like uh, spouses that come to me and they're having problems in their marriage, I give you advice, but I don't expect you to because you've got to live in that. You've got to make the decision. And so that's the way it is. It's, it's, it's kind of like this, guys. You come home from work and your wife has been working hard cleaning the house, but you need to go hunting the next day and so you want to clean your shotgun on the, on the dining room table. My advice is submit, okay? <laughs> submit to her that I've just cleaned up the house and it's time. You may say I'm a hit, but it's time we submit to one another. Okay, so let's go on verse 25. And here's the second part is selfless love. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Selfless love. What is selfless love or sacrificial love? You might hear that and you might think, but do I really know what sacrificial love? Here's a key right here. Not wanting anything in return. Not wanting anything in return. If you do something nice for your spouse to get brownie points, it's not sacrificial or selfless love. If you do something nice for your spouse so that next weekend you get to go do your thing because you did something nice for them and you're going to remember what you did nice for them, that's not selfless love. You know, if you keep, if you keep score, you know, we got, we've got three grandkids, you know, and uh, our, four, our, our only grandson, we got three, our only grandson, Colin, Colin keeps score. He can tell you whose time it is to sleep at Pop and Nana's house. He keeps score. He knows love, selfless love does not keep score. Does not do things for the sake of getting something else later. It, selfless love does not do things just to get a kiss or anything more. You, you, that's not selfless love. Selfless love is, 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 doing, is doing what is best for the other person. And this is the only thing you want out of it. You only want the other person. You don't want their sacrifice. You don't want their time. You just want them. When Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, he didn't say, I'm going to die for your sins. And if you do A, B, C, D, and E, no, he said, I'm dying for your sin. I'm paying for them. All you got to do is believe in me. He said, he's basically said, I'm dying for you. All I want is you. I don't want your stuff. I don't, I don't, I don't want you, your action. I don't want, I just want you. He just wants to be reconciled to us. That's what selfless love is. Is not having any agendas. The third thing is, uh, is uh, perfection, perfecting. To make her holy, cleansing, here's verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, perfecting. Perfect. Is anybody perfect? No, nobody's perfect. Perfection. Should we expect perfection? No, we shouldn't expect perfection. Then what is he talking about here when he's talking about perfecting her and, and, and cleansing her? He was talking about bringing her, and, and, and again, we can reverse the genders here because we talk about a wife perfecting her husband. And we're talking about doing the things that are necessary to help them become the most perfect image of God that they can be in themselves. It's just like sometimes a spouse works and puts another spouse through college. 
to help them perfect and become everything they can be. Or this one's, you know, that might be hard, but this one's probably even harder. Or like when one spouse goes on a diet and the other spouse goes on the diet with them. And they don't bring it up every, every, every meal that, now you remember, I'm on this diet with you, you know. But because they're trying to better themselves in some way that they also go on the same diet. Or we could go deeper. We could talk about sin. If, you know, if your spouse has really all of their life struggled with a particular temptation or a sin, then the, the, the thing you can do most to protect them and perfect them is to never allow anything like that to come near them. And, and you know, and, and, and I look around us and I, and I see how much, how much we're, we're doing exactly the opposite. It's like, no, 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 I need what I need, you know, and I want what I want. You know, I have, recently we've had so many people asking us about alcohol, you know, is, is, will alcohol send you to hell? Well, I hope not. You know, I, I used some on, a, on, a, on an ant bite, you know, not too long ago, you know, and I, I hope it won't send you to hell. That's, that's not what y'all meant. Is that not what y'all were talking about? But let me give you a little bit of different perspective about it. Is, uh, my, my wife says in her family, there, there, there's, there's just been a lot of alcohol abuse. And she said she was sitting with a doctor when, when one of the extended family members was having some issues. And, and the doctor was explaining to the whole family that sometimes there is a gene and it's, and it's in the family. And at that very, you know, I've heard this all my life pretty much, but I mean, this doctor said that this is, this is the way they treat it, is that, is that sometimes there's a gene and just the very first taste of alcohol triggers that, that addiction because of this gene that is there. And so this gene is passed down in the family. And because of the, the damage that we have seen with alcoholism and the damage we've seen with abusing of alcohol and the damage we've seen in, in family members and not just her family, but in my family as well, but because of that, she, she, she said, absolutely not. There'll never be a, a drop of alcohol in our house. You know what? And you know what? We, we might have been able to make, make something taste a little better, you know, by cooking with a little bit of this or a little bit of that. But the concern was, is that one of my kids or my grandkids could have that gene, and I don't want to do anything, even though I like the taste of scampi with just a little bit of wine in it. I think that's the way Red Lobster makes it just a little bit, you know, and I really like that. You know, I like that. I would love to try that maybe at home a little bit. But because one of my kids might have that gene and just one sip puts them in a, puts them in a place that I've seen so many of our family members. She said, I can't do that. That's, that's what this means to perfect one another. And it's a protecting thing as well as a doing thing, okay? And then the next, the next ingredient is possession. All right, now this, is, this one's kind of blowing you away. I know, possession. I can't believe we're talking about possession here because even last week we talked about how, how sometimes guys see women as, uh, you know, as possessions or things. But verse 27 says, and he, do, he does this. He perfects her to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, the example here is, is, that, is, is that we men or we, all of us, need to treat our spouses in a way that we're perfecting them so that we can eventually present them to ourselves to, to like to have them that they belong to us because that's what Jesus did with his church that we would actually have them that we would own them that there would be possession take place you know in just a moment we're going to talk about being one there is no one without possession and, and there is no one with just a half possession it's like you know I can't possess I can't own my wife Deva unless she also owns me I, she, she is not totally mine 
unless I am totally hers. If I don't completely belong to her, then she will never completely belong to me. But if I can, and, and here's what you need to remember is, is the example that Jesus already set by, as you see the, the words that we've got running down the street, the, you know, the recipe that's right there is the selfless love and the perfecting. Before we get to the possession, Jesus Christ, he's already shown the selfless love, the sacrificial love, dying on the cross of Calvary. Whether, whether you love me or not, whether I get you or not, I'm going to die for you anyway and hope that you do. You do come and, 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 and I do get to get you. And, and, and whether or not he, and he, and he perfects you and, and he's working on you and he's protecting you and he's, he's Building, building walls around you if you'll let him to keep you protected and, and, and he's doing the things to pour into you. He does all that. He does all of that before he ever begins to take his church to be his, to be his spouse, to be his wife, his bride. And in the same way, we don't, we don't rush in and possess because we've got a whole lot of other things that we have to take care of. And, and when we men as heads, let me say, we should take the lead in giving before receiving because you have to do both you cannot receive unless you give and when you give 100 percent and then the other the your spouse the other gives their 100 percent then there can be possession because i mean it even goes even all the way back to the submission that's that's what we're talking about here that possession can't happen unless there's total submission by both parties you know, there should be that right in here somewhere, there should be a, a, a few lights going on in some heads right now. It's, oh, that's why my marriage is only right about here and it's not up here. Some of these things ought to probably be, you know, just kind of coming to light. So, mm, I hadn't thought about that. Hadn't seen that, Pastor. Didn't know about that, Pastor. And, you know, here, here's, here's something also. It's when I read Ephesians chapter 5, beginning there, verse 21. It'd be good for you to read it this afternoon. Because I'm breaking it up here and stopping you to show you some things. And, some, and it's good to really just read it and think about it. You know, like I, I mentioned my son-in-law Bradley coming and asking me for permission to ask my daughter, Kristen, to, to, marry, to marry him. And, you know, in the same way, you know, think about, think about that this person that you want to get married to does not just have an earthly father. This person has a heavenly father. And I read some of this, and I'm hearing God like an overprotective, jealous father who is saying, now wait a minute here, and not just over the women, but over the guys too. So you need, you need to think about this. And instead of being so worried, you know, I can imagine there was probably some, there was probably some concern, trepidation by Bradley, you know, coming and, and a little, little worry that, you know, maybe this is not going to go exactly like it. And incidentally, he reminded me of something last week after I said that, that it didn't go quite as thought, way he thought it would, you know, and you know, you get a little nervous and like, oh man, how? let me tell you something more than being nervous over my attitude toward the way you treat your spouse, you better be more concerned over God's attitude toward you and the way you treat your spouse because he controls your future. He controls your eternity. He controls whether you breathe in the next five minutes. I mean, you know, so, I mean, you, you, we need to be more concerned that we have this God that loves your spouse or your future spouse more than you ever will, than you ever can, than it is even possible for you to imagine and he is concerned with the way we treat one another. And, and I, I really, I really kind of got stuck here these last couple of minutes. 
because uh, today, I mean, today I, I've got a, I got a dad's heart right now over my church today because so many of you are struggling with such heavy things. Several of, several of our, our families are struggling with such heavy things today. You know, and I, I, was, I was almost there at the, end of the, at the end of the songs. I was almost like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to preach. I just want to go hug everybody and just pray for them. Just, just boo-hoo with, with some of these families here today because of what you're going through. But I know, I know you needed to hear the words of life. I know you needed to hear that God, God's got a recipe. If God's got a recipe for a wonderful marriage, guess what? He's got a recipe for everything else in your life too. He's got a recipe for that. He wants to give it to you. So, so let's go on. Our, our verse 28, uh, and this is the one body was talking about a little bit ago. Verse 28 through 30. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. One body. You say, I've I, I got to hurry here, but I'm going to say this as quick as I can. A wonderful marriage is not one where there are two people. Two people do not make a wonderful marriage. Two people who are constantly vying for position, trying to figure out how I can get my way. Or we can go where I want to go on vacation this year. Or we can spend our tax refund check on what I want to spend it on. That is not ever going to be a wonderful marriage. It's going to come down to you having to be one, one, one body. That everything about, everything about who you and your spouse is, is united together. That you make decisions, even, even though one of you knows, one of you knows, you know, uh, math and, and finances better and maybe can give better advice, and the other one knows planning and organizing and other things better and so or child raising better, or how to talk. And sometimes it's split down the middle as one parent knows how to talk to one kid better and another parent, another parent knows how to talk to the other kid better. And then if you got three kids, normally that baby, neither one of them knows how to talk to them, right? You just say, you know, it's just uh, flip a coin, honey, and let's just figure it out, okay? But you, but you understand that you have to be one. You'll never have a wonderful marriage as long as you're two. How do you become one then? Uh, I, I don't have time to share with you, but if you'll go to the Sunday's page, there's, a, there's another note there that I don't have time to share with you. Almost every week in Sunday's page, uh, there's something in my notes I don't get to. And so if you want just a little more, go to the Sunday's page this afternoon. Okay. Last thing, last thing. Here, here's the last ingredient, and it's the most, probably the most important. Because if you get this one, you'll, you'll eventually get the rest of them. It's the God factor. Paul says this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Read that. What's he, this is profound. I, 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 I can't explain this to you. It is a deep mystery that no one can explain how two can become one. You remember, uh, I need to hurry, but Genesis, uh, John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night and he said, what's going on here? You, you say you're the son of God, da-da-da-da. Everybody's saying this about you. You know, what, what's going on here? What, what's the issues here? T tell me the truth. And Jesus said, if you want to have eternal life, you've got to be born again. And so Nicodemus like, how in the world can you tell me i got to go back in my mother's womb and be born again as an adult, be born again? You know, he's, he's like, this, this is a mystery I don't understand. And Jesus said, He's basically telling him, look, you're thinking only physically in the flesh. But he said, you have to be born of spirit also. 
Paul said this is such a deep mystery. What he's saying is you will never have a wonderful marriage in your own power, in your own strength. You got to have the God factor. Only God can make two one. I mean, it, the proof of that to me is the Trinity. Somebody explain it to me. Three can't be one and one can't be three, but that's what God says he is. He's one that is three, he's three that is one. I, I don't understand that, but it's a deep mystery. But you know what I see? I see the picture in a little bit in me and my wife. I see a picture in some awesome marriages where two have truly become one. That there's no longer a my and his or my and hers, but it's ours. And the only way that really happens, you can work and you can work and you can work on that for years, but the only way it really happens is when you truly let God be the final factor in making your marriage work. And, you, you know, and if you'll start here, you might have a problem with mutual submission. You might have a problem with selfless love. You might have a problem with perfecting the other one and setting yourself aside so that they can be better. You might have a problem with trying to possess too early before you know, you've, really, you've really done the things or maybe even allowing yourself to be given over so that you can possess. You may have a problem with all those, but if you'll start with this last one, this God factor, he'll bring all the rest of those things into your marriage, the God factor. It's the final ingredient, but it's the most important. And it's the final ingredient, but if you don't have any of them, start there. He'll bring the rest. Can I ask you to join me at the front, if you will? Please stand. I want to uh, just, if you're a first-time attender, just let you know, we, we like to come to the front and close with a final song and a final prayer. And, and for those that need special prayer, prayer team is going to be here, and we are anxiously waiting for the opportunity to pray over your marriage, or if you're sick in body, or your kids are sick, we'd, we'd join hands with you and have a prayer and believe because the Word of God says the prayer of faith will save the sick. You got, got a kid sick at home, or got a kid sick, please let us pray with you and believe with you. We want to do that. So if you're a first-time attender, we invite you to join us here, if you will, also. Prayer team members, they got a little lanyard hanging around their neck somewhere. Scattered around, just look for the lanyard. Who has, oh, I, I, let me give you one last scripture. I'm sorry, I almost skipped my last scripture. Um, and it's verse 33, it's a recap. To me, it's a recap. It's like Paul says, okay, let me, let me recap this for you, verse 33. However, each one of you must al also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And if you go back through those verses, that's what you see. It's a recap, love and respect. Love and respect. Here, here's, your couple of, here's your couple of steps to get it started in your marriage. Ask God to really truly become a factor in your marriage. And then if you're a husband, love your wife. And if you're a wife, respect your husband. Ask for God and then do the thing there that Paul says. That's the, that, that's the place to begin. Let me ask you this just before Jamie leaves us in the last song. I want to pray. And I'm going to ask all of you to bow and pray over your future marriages, over your present marriages. You know, but I, I, I just want to ask, can I pray for somebody who has a good marriage that wants a wonderful marriage? Can I pray with you and your spouse? And uh, gentlemen, don't wait on, you, on your wives to move. Ladies, don't wait on your husband to move. Just take them by the hand and step this way. If you'd like me, a prayer team member, to pray, you got a good marriage, but you want a, you want a one.